I imagine that if you are new to attending church, there are probably a few things that are a little, a little different about what we do here. Um, just think about it. Christian, I hope you think about this stuff from time to time so that you can kind of put new believers and guests a little more at ease. Oftentimes, we do stuff, and we don't even know why we're doing them. <laughs> and uh, we say things, and we don't even really know what we're saying because we've said those words so often. So This morning, I want us to kind of take a step back from growing up in church or being around church for so often, and I want us to see with fresh eyes um, this whole idea of what we do here today. You know, the event of a church service is unlike anything else in the rest of our lives. At least it is in mine. I guess in some ways, it might be similar to a classroom. You know, maybe there's a lecture-style teacher. Maybe those of you who are in college or you've been in college recently, you get that sense where you sit in a room and you hear one person talk for 40 minutes to an hour sometimes, and you, you get that sense of this being a lecture-style Kind of classroom, but I am. I hope I'm not the only one who's glad that we don't have any tests or quizzes. Although sometimes, like this afternoon, I hope to give you some homework to memorize Romans chapter six, verse four. I can't think of many classes that begin and end with singing, though. I don't know how your class experience was. That's pretty different. Rarely, if ever, do you just sit and listen to choir music. Um, I don't normally. I don't know. Actually, sometimes I do, but you probably don't uh, throughout your week. You probably don't just sit and listen to choir music, but you did today. Rarely, if ever, um, is there an encouragement to stand and sing congregationally. Think about that. You might have been to a concert or two, and you might have hummed along or maybe even belted out a few lyrics, but there was no like, all right, now everybody sing. You know, there wasn't really that. Uh, probably the closest that we get to the seating style that we have to anything outside of the church is probably a movie theater. Um, you sit in rows and you are turning your attention to one particular place. You're discouraged, however, from interacting in that movie. Uh, you don't want to comment on it um, during the movie. Uh, you don't have to pay to get in here. And I didn't see anyone scanning tickets in the lobby, so this isn't the same thing. Film is not the central medium. We've got a common story that we gather around. If you think about it, it's pretty irregular in your everyday life to be involved in what I heard one guy call church uh, a glorified book club, but the, the B has to be capitalized in that case. But think about this book. Normally when someone references a quote in a book, they, they call your attention to a chapter or better yet, a page number. Think about sitting in church for the first time ever, being incredibly unfamiliar with the Bible, and the person who is behind the pulpit, he tells you to turn in your Bible to a location or city like Romans or Philippians or Galatians. There's no other book like that. Weirder still would be if you were to hear words or titles of books like Ecclesiastes, God bless you kind of thing, right? Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. I haven't even talked about the content of what we discuss on a regular basis in church, and already I hope you see that what we do here is so out of the norm from everything else that's outside these walls. The content of what we talk about really is the strangest thing. We believe 
that a Nazarene man born 2,000 years ago was in all actuality the one and true God-man who lived among us, did wonderful, miraculous acts, preached a compelling story, was crucified on a cross, which was actually his plan to die on all along, and then three days after dying, God raised him from the dead. That is a strange story if you've never heard it before. It's a strange story if you've heard it 5,000 times. All of that, it's not just a little out of the ordinary. It is very out of the ordinary. I haven't even mentioned some of the stranger things that you never see outside of a church service. If you grew up in church like, like I did, um, have you ever stopped to see the Lord's Supper with fresh eyes? Next week we'll partake in the Lord's Supper. and I'll read from Scripture where Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, take, eat. This is my blood poured out for you, take, drink. What's going on there? Think about the washing of the saints' feet. We do this every time we take the Lord's Supper. Is there ever a time outside of church where as an act of humility and serving another person, you would bend down in front of them and wash their feet? I I wouldn't if I was not convinced of the command of Christ in Scripture. No, church is unlike anything in the world. Even if there are some similarities to other events, People do gather weekly for stuff. People are involved in studying a book. They they do go to concerts to hear music, and they often sing along. People share meals together all the time, and I've seen some pretty dedicated and moving acts of service from people outside the church walls. But none of those, none of those, are even remotely close to a church service. At least there's some point of reference for the person who's being thrust into all of this, though. There is, however, one thing in the church which really has no remote counterpart to anything outside the church, and that is baptism. It is so strange and so peculiar and so beautiful. I want you to see it for how the Lord meant it. If I had not grown up in Christianity my entire life and attended thousands of church services, I think baptism... I know baptism would probably be the thing that catches me off guard in a church service because there is no other time when a couple of people stand in front of a few hundred people, get into water fully clothed in the front of an auditorium inside, and one dunk the other. It is just abnormal from start to finish. And I believe that the Lord has designed it that way. I want us to go back to baptism basics this morning because for a couple of reasons. The first of which is, Christian, you need to be reminded of the beauty of this practice. Maybe an offshoot of that is, there are many Christians in this building right now who have made a decision to follow Christ, and yet, For one reason or the other, some good excuses, if there can be good excuses, some not, you have never followed the Lord and believer's baptism. 
I want to encourage you to take that first step of obedience. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 20 years. If you have not followed the Lord and believers' baptism, you have yet to take the first step of obedience. So that's the first reason. I want the Christians who are in the house, I want you to see it for what it is, how beautiful it is meant to be. But the second reason is because I want to show those who might not be believers this very strange act of plunging someone down into water, I want to show you what the actual meaning is because it is good for us. Baptism, it's one of the ordinances that we practice within New Hope Free Old Baptist Church. You say, Corey, that doesn't explain one thing about what baptism is. You just mentioned an ordinance of the church. What does that even mean? An ordinance is a particular practice of a church commanded and established by Jesus that carries an example to follow, a symbol to preach, and a reminder to live. That's the outline this morning. If you are taking notes, you can write it down. It'll be on the test later. This is in a classroom. An ordinance is a particular practice of a church commanded and established by Jesus that carries an example to follow, a symbol to preach, and a reminder to live. Okay, so that's what an ordinance is, but what is baptism? Interestingly enough, most people trace baptism's roots all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, Sometimes people go to some of the Old Testament ceremonial cleansings or washings to describe the first hints at baptism. I mean, multiple times throughout, particularly Leviticus and through Deuteronomy, you will see special commands of God for his people to wash thoroughly. Think about this. Aaron and his sons, the first priests, all the priests after them, they were to stringently wash before offering up any sacrifice. More often than not, whenever a person was involved with a particularly gruesome or unclean act, Scripture dictates that they would be scrubbed ceremonially. And it gets pretty intricate in some of that scrubbing ceremonial cleansing. Some of that might be the roots of baptism, but I tend to to see it a bit more generically than that. I don't think it has its roots in particular in Old Testament ritual washings. The Old Testament prophets, they would oftentimes use the imagery of water cleaning off dirt to liken what their hearers should do with their sin. So they would preach that their hearers should wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. All of those good things are followed by wash yourselves. How does the outward washing have anything to do with the rest of that though? Isaiah explains it. Or in Ezekiel, God tells his people that he will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
In the Psalms, David pled with the Lord asking forgiveness for his, son, in, for his sins. And in Psalm 51, one of the most beautiful psalms of, of contrition throughout the Bible, he screams out to God, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So again, you see the symbolism. Time and time again, the Old Testament saints would use this picture of cleansing power of water to describe what the Lord could or would, what He wants to do for them spiritually. And that's why I believe the last of the Old Testament prophets, a man by the name of John the Baptist, or if you don't like him being called a Baptist, you can call him John the Baptizer. He used this imagery to bridge the gap between the Old Covenant and the New. To bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So let me introduce you to this man named John the Baptist because he was no ordinary guy. That is to say the least. If you walked in here this morning, there would be some heads turning. And not necessarily because he was a good-looking guy. I have no idea if he was a good-looking guy or not. He certainly caught the attention of the first century crowds. His clothes, they were made out of camel's hide. Uh, that is not my first choice of fabric when, when choosing clothing. Camel's hide. Very likely, according to the vow that he was born into, he had probably very long hair. His diet, if he were to bring a dish tonight to the Summer Connection, you'd want to veer away from his dish. Locusts and honey. Nope, no thank you. As strange a figure as this man was, though, he gathered a crowd, and it wasn't just because of the shock value of, of all these things that he did. No, he preached a peculiar message to everyone who heard him. So strange. His was a message of preparation and repentance. Prepare and repent. Both hands. It was prepare for the Messiah, make his path straight, ready your hearts for our God. And then the question would be okay, well, how do I do that? How do I prepare the way for God? And through, he would come back quickly with through repentance. John would add turning from your life of sin and turning to acknowledge God as the Lord of your life. That's the way to prepare for the Messiah. Prepare to meet God, and the way you do that is by repenting. Prepare, repent. Prepare, repent. And as a symbol of that turning to God and forsaking sin, John also began dipping people in water. So the Old Testament prophets, they used it as a word picture. Cleanse me, wash me, David would, would pray. But very literal, John the Baptist he actually comes along and he dunks people who had acknowledged his message, who had repented of their sin, who were preparing the way for God, and he would take them into water and making the Old Testament literal, he would dunk them under. Well, the practice was both accepted and unheard of. Don't ask me to explain what I mean by that. Um, I don't really think I can, but you get this picture in Scripture. Even the Pharisees in John chapter 1, verses 24 through 25, they understood the picture of what John was trying to convey about baptism. They got it. 
They understood that it was talking about a washing away of sins, a picture of washing away of sins. But it was so uncommon a thing for preachers to do that they had a ton of questions about it. But Jesus, Jesus who happened to be a cousin of John and the one that John had been preaching about being ready for the coming of God, the Messiah, Jesus comes on the scene and in an act of affirming John's message of turning from sin to God, he asks John to baptize him. And it's here in the baptism of Jesus that the symbolism of baptism changes into something else. No longer do you see the word picture here of a cleansing from sin, necessarily. Water baptism had always been seen as a symbolically cleansing thing, but therefore the Old Testament pictures, they oftentimes, the Old Testament pictured the force of water as an act much more violent than just cleaning. You see in the Old Testament, water purging. Cleansing and purging is totally different. Water in the Old Testament in several occasions that deals with death. Particularly, the great flood in Genesis chapter 7, whereby all of humanity except Noah and his family were saved. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he calls that a picture of baptism. The destruction of the Egyptian army that followed the newly released Hebrew slaves in Exodus chapter 14 when the Red Sea collapsed on them. Well, Paul relates that to baptism in 1 Corinthians 10 too. No, no, just as often as there were pictures in the Old Testament of water cleansing, there's also this picture of water purging or death attached to it. So all of that being understood in the Old Testament, water baptism was a picture of cleansing of sin through death. So when Jesus stepped down into the water that afternoon with John preaching, He would take upon Himself all the symbolism of that act. He would cleanse our sin and it was through His death that He would do it. But more than all of the other pictures of the Old Testament, he would do something more. Those who were submerged in the flood, those who were caught in the Red Sea, they had no hope of survival in the Old Testament picture. It was their death that was there to pay for their sins. But Jesus brings the hope of resurrection because he died, because he rose again on the third day. We too are dipped into our grave of death, but then we are raised to walk in the newness of life. So it starts with the washing of sins picture, but it gets so much deeper than that that in order for sin to really be dealt with, it can't be surface level cleansing. It must be killed. And Jesus, when he walks down into the water and has John baptize him, he says, I will die so that you will live. That's the symbolism of baptism. I don't think it's better explained anywhere than in the book of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Four verses that are incredibly deep. It seems a pretty strange way to open up a chapter, doesn't it? With a question, what shall we say then? You're like, Corey, we should have read Romans 5. We should have. We don't have time this morning. What shall we say then to everything that has just been said in Romans chapter 5? Or what should we say about all of this? The this that Paul is referencing is the fact that there were some Christians who were coming into the church and they were making light of sin. Saying things like, yeah, I know it's a sin, but God's going to forgive me for it. Look, the Lord already saved me. I've already been forgiven, so what does it matter if I just keep on doing this sin because I know heaven's my home. I know Christ's blood covers it all. I've even heard people say, look, God's grace is big enough to forgive me of this sin that I'm going to commit. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, certainly not. Certainly not. Actually, in the original language, it's this quick, short, expressive prayer. Let it never be. Let it never be. And that's why it's been translated in the King James of God forbid. It's this prayer. God, never let this happen. Never let your people saved by you have such a weak view of sin that they see it as no big deal. Why? Well, Paul takes us Christians back to our very beginning of our journey of faith in Romans 6. He takes us to our baptism. If you were buried with Jesus, that old life laid to rest under the water like Jesus was laid to rest in the tomb after his death, that old life is gone. You have been raised to live apart from sin. We'll talk about that at the very end. Here's the thing. Jesus gave us baptism as an example to follow. I hope you caught that. When in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul proclaims it to be the common experience of every Christian. This is the one thing that every Christian ought to have in common, that they were each baptized, to have stood before a group of believers affirming her faith in Jesus, applauding her decision to follow Christ, holding her accountable to live in the newness of life. This is the basic idea of faith lived out in public. Look, it is so ironic to me that we who call ourselves Baptists, that oftentimes we take such a passive view of baptism. Yes, you are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And it's nothing that you can do. But I could take you to passage after passage after passage, which teaches you get baptized. It is an example of 
Christ to follow. As Jesus stood before others, before the Father, before the Spirit, was dipped into the water, prophesying of His death, burial, and resurrection, so we follow His example. Look, baptism is a powerful example of the Gospel that it needs to be followed. This act, it it doesn't save you. There's nothing special about the water in our baptistry or down at the Cumberland or Sycamore Creek or the pond you have on your property. There's nothing special or magical about that H2O there, but I want you to hear and heed the warning of Jesus who says in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but who does not believe will be condemned. He ties our faith and this outward expression of our faith so very closely in that verse. Your faith, it is to be lived out in the public arena. Not kept privately to yourself. Baptism is the, it's the start of all of that. It's the public profession of an inward decision. When somebody steps into the waters of our baptistry, they are not getting saved then. They are proclaiming their salvation that they have found in Christ already. Baptism, it, it lets your employers, your coworkers, your neighbors, your, your family know I am dead. The old Corey is dead, and I am raised to life in Christ. Christ gave it to us not just as an example to emulate, but also it is a symbol to preach. It's a sermon that you are missing out on if you've never participated in it yourself. Our world desperately, desperately needs to hear and see the gospel lived out. And baptism does that. I want you to hear me on this, Christian. There can be nothing, nothing so powerful than a man or woman standing before their church, whether in a baptistry or down at some creek, among friends that they've invited to see their new commitment, dying to self and sin, raised to walk in the newness of life, identifying with Jesus and His death, displaying the hope we have in resurrection. There is nothing more powerful than that symbolism. I don't know if you're like me, sometimes it's hard for me to put my testimony into words. Have you ever been caught off guard like that? Somebody, it's very rare that anybody would ask this, but you start talking to somebody, maybe about spiritual things, perhaps about church, and you've kind of gotten into a discussion about what does it mean to be a Christian? Or maybe more personally, they'll ask, why are you a Christian? That's the question we, we ought to hope everyone would ask us. But if you're like me, very often it is difficult for me to express in words what I think, how I believe, maybe even how I feel. We ought to work hard at crafting that testimony. Who I was before Jesus, who I am now after Christ has taken up residence. But in so many ways, the act of baptism, this picture of baptism, it does that work for us. It proclaims to all the world, not in specifics, not saying, hey, this is all the sin this person committed, but it lays to rest. It kills all of that and it shows what it means to walk with Christ. You're missing out on an opportunity to preach the symbol of the gospel. 
And this is why I'm, I'm pretty big on the actual immersion or dipping of someone into water. I believe I understand the case for sprinkling and pouring. I have friends who, who believe that. But the very word baptizo that's used here in the New Testament, it means to submerge into water. The picture of us going underwater. It is just the picture of Jesus going into the grave. It's powerful. And Paul calls this the likeness of Christ's death. That plunging underwater, it's the likeness of Christ's death there in verse 5. You have been, or we have been, united together in the likeness of His death. Like you can certainly take it too far, but that phrase, being united together in the likeness of Christ's death, it shows that this is both symbolic, but it is somehow more than just only a symbol. There's a picture of real relationship with Jesus and His death that I think supersedes actuality. And then because Christ didn't stay in the grave, again, He wasn't one of the members of the flood in Genesis 7. Uh, in Genesis 7. He, he wasn't the Egyptian army in Exodus 14. He doesn't stay in the grave. He raises to life again. He says, Paul does in verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. The bringing up out of the grave. The likeness of His resurrection. I've lost some of you, so maybe this will bring you back. I have kept track of every wedding, every funeral, every baby dedication, and just about every sermon that I've ever preached. Just about all of them. I have never kept record of baptisms, though. I can't give you an exact number, but I've been blessed to Baptize a few dozen people in my lifetime. So I get to see it a little bit more up close and personal than just about any of you, although we've got several pastors here, maybe retired or in the middle, in between ministries, and these guys, they've baptized more people than, than I ever will probably. But I get to see it kind of firsthand. All those that I have baptized, you know, they, they have one thing in common. They all gasp for air when I bring them up out of the water. That's a good thing, by the way. I haven't lost one yet. There really is something about the <gasps> gasp for air. Maybe not so much in my early years, but definitely more recently. Every time I bring them up out of the water, I look for that first breath. Not because I'm worried that they're not going to take it. But I think of Christ in the tomb. I can't explain all this to you. I, I don't know the mechanics of how it all works or the anatomy of how it all works. But this I know. Jesus was dead. Arteries and veins emptied of blood. Poured out 
bled out. Totally empty of blood. But they began pumping again with blood. Lungs that had once been deflated, having breathed his last, that last, <sighs> lungs had been deflated, suffocated, crushed under the weight of the body hanging on a tree. Well, those lungs inflated. And in the tomb, Jesus <gasps> gasped for air. I'm reminded of the resurrection every time I bring someone up out of the water, and so should you. There is a coming great resurrection day where the dead in Christ will rise. Don't, again, don't ask me how to explain all the mechanics of it all. It's a great mystery to me, and if you think you've got it figured out, it's a great mystery to you. You just don't know it. The dead in Christ shall rise, and there will be dead bodies taking <gasps> a gasp of breath. Baptism is the symbol of all that. Christ's death and his resurrection, our eventual death and one day resurrection, our sin being cleansed but put to death with Christ, and then we are now raised to walk in the newness of life with Christ. You want this in your life, Christian. You want that symbolism. Mainly, if for no other reason, because it's a reminder of how to live. You say, Corey, look, man, this has been a great class today. Uh, Baptism 101, sure, been there, done that, got baptized when I was five years old, six years old, 20 years old, whatever. What does this have anything to do with me today? Well, because it's an ongoing symbol. It's an ongoing reminder of how to live. Paul says in verse 7 of Romans 6, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has no dominion over Him. For the death that Christ died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also, likewise, new hope also, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a continual reminder of how we are to live apart from sin. I, uh, I came to Christ early in life. I can hardly remember asking my dad to pray with me for salvation. It's one of those things, I have a faint memory about it, but it's almost like I'm seeing it in third person, so I don't, I don't know if the memory's lying to me or not. But I was young when I was baptized. I can vividly remember that event. It's so out of the ordinary. 
to standing in front of a group of people in water. It's just memorable. I believe the Lord designed it that way as an event that I can look back on as the defining moment of my life with Him. It reminds me, Corey Minner died at the age of five. And he has been living in Christ these last 31 years. But it goes deeper than that. Every time we see a baptism, it ought to remind us, I am freed from sin. Christ conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And it no longer has a hold on me. So Paul uses this language of master and slave throughout Romans chapter 6. He says sin was once our master and we its slave. We once had to do what it demanded of us. But then Jesus. Sin has been rendered inoperative, dead, powerless over the Christian. Am I still tempted? Oh my word, yes. But now through Christ, it has no hold on me. Go back to the word picture that Paul gave us earlier in verse 6 of Romans 6. We, we are slaves to sin and, and sin is our master. Or before Christ, sin was our master. And I want you to see it maybe in more historical, tangible terms. After the Emancipation Proclamation was enacted on January 1st, 1863 in the U.S., every enslaved person was free. Just free. There had been about four months of preparation and, and getting everybody ready for that, but January 1st, there were no slaves legally in America. They had liberty granted to them from the President of the United States. Does that mean that their masters did not still oppress them? Certainly not. We have some pretty horrific stories of things happening after the Emancipation Proclamation. But legally, those masters had no authority on their life any longer. None. If oppressed, the freed person could call out to the nearest authority and seek help. Now, reading about life in the U.S. directly after that time, I'd be a fool to say that justice was done in every instance. It most certainly was not. But that's where the court of our king is so much higher in every instance than what we have in this nation. We are freed from the enslavement of sin. When Christ was resurrected, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed for you, Christian, and you are free. Does sin still try to corrupt and influence and keep you under its thumb? It absolutely does, but it has no power. All you do is you go to your nearest authority and you cry out for justice, and justice is done, believer. Sin has no power no authority over you anymore. 
We simply appeal to the King and He delivers. That's why Paul concludes the whole thought in Romans 6 of this idea of baptism in verse 14. He says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law. You're under grace. It's another sermon for another time. Baptism is the example. It's the symbol. It's the reminder of that grace. Every time we see somebody dip a foot into these waters, or every time we, I don't know, maybe we need to have a good old creek baptism sometime soon. Every time we gather at the river, it is showing what Christ has done for us in giving us life. It is displaying for all the world how they can walk in the newness of life. And it's reminding every Christian, sin has no power over me. I was once its slave. No more. You want this. You want this. Father, I pray. Lord, I beg of you, I pray that we will begin to see the power of this command to be baptized. But I don't want us to worship the act. I don't want us to get caught up in even all the mechanics of it. Lord, I want us to see it for what it was meant to be. A reminder and a symbol and an example for us to follow. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.